Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Ah, welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning on a Wednesday. I am so excited to be back with you guys. Um, I was up very late last night typing this up. I forgot how long it takes me to actually curate this stuff for this. So um, I will get back into it soon. Uh, The Kremlin is weighing up plans to hike oil and gas taxes in a bid to bolster next year's federal budget, according to a report, as Western sanctions appear to be taking a heavier toll on Russia's economy. I don't know how much weight to put into some of this. Like, how much do we really know about Russia's economy considering we're at war with them right now? Uh, This new tax would raise around 1.4 trillion rubles or $50 billion, and they want to raise export duties on natural gas up to 50% and to introduce a new tax on liquefied natural gas exports. The finance ministry has also proposed a plan to hike taxes on oil exports. The U.S. and EU have imposed embargoes on Russian oil while Germany hits its winter storage targets two months early. Oil and gas exports account for 45% of Russia's federal budget. The finance ministry has stopped publishing their monthly reports, but documents reviewed by Bloomberg show that Russia has lost billions from Western sanctions with its budget surplus falling by 137 billion rubles, or $2.1 billion as of August. I'm sure they'll just pop on down to Ukraine and grab that back since we've sent so much money over there. Revenue from oil and gas has also fallen because of the ruble's appreciation against the United States dollar. With Russia's currency soaring 112% against the greenback since hitting its 2022 low on March 8th, A strong ruble chips away at Russia's income from oil and gas exports because both of these commodities are valued in dollars or other non-ruble currencies. On international markets, when Russia converts its energy revenues back into rubles, a high exchange rate means it's losing money. Liz Cheney, who compares herself to Abraham Lincoln, has announced proposals for a new bill which would, quote, help prevent another effort to steal a presidential election. In an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal, Liz Cheney and Democrat uh, Congresswoman Zoe Lefkren announced a series of reforms to the Electoral Count Act, which would make it clear that Congress cannot overturn an election result. The lawmakers added that a number of current candidates for offices in the upcoming midterms including those who oversee elections, may try and change the outcome of future results and also, quote, embrace those lies and groundless conspiracy theories. This raises the prospect of another effort to steal a presidential election, perhaps with another attempt to corrupt Congress's proceeding to tally electoral votes. I'm sorry, but I have to interject here for a moment. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia, and Arizona all violated state election laws by circumventing their state legislatures in the name of COVID. That is not a groundless conspiracy theory. It happened. 
But pigs will fly the day a single person on that stupid committee ever talks about that. Anyway, as part of the proposed changes, Cheney and Lofgren suggested updating the Electoral Count Act of 1887 on the basis of, quote, four fundamental principles. The first change would be altering the act to make it clear that a vice president has no authority or discretion to reject official state electoral slates or delay the count as part of their authority or discretion to reject official state electoral slates or delay the count as part of the... Oh, I just totally repeated myself. (laughs) Sorry. Um or delay the count as part of their ceremonial role as providing presiding officer of the Senate. I'm rusty again, so there will be tons of that, I'm sure. Uh, they also have proposed narrowing the grounds in which members of Congress can object to electoral slates. Grounds which would be accepted include constitutional requirements for candidate and elector eligibility, as well as the 12th Amendment's explicit requirements for elector balloting. Once the objections have been filed, one-third of both chambers would have to approve for it to be entertained, and then a majority vote needed for it to be sustained. They also proposed that presidential candidates should be able to sue if any election official refuses to transmit lawful election results to Congress. And to have it written in federal law that elections can't change after the election has taken place. I'm sorry, that's some bullshit. If it's found that someone was elected illegitimately, too bad? Nah, fuck that and fuck you tyrants. Liz Cheney wrapped up her statement with, quote, We must be very clear-eyed about the threat we face and about what is required to defeat it. I have said since January 6th that I will do whatever it takes to make sure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office. This is interesting language to me. I, you know, whether you like Trump or you hate him, in a constitutional republic, it is the people who decide who is near the Oval Office, not Liz Cheney. Donald Trump has not been convicted of any crimes yet. I anticipate he will be indicted on having classified documents, but up to this point, he has not been. We've reached a new level of deterioration that because someone is disliked so fervently, the American people are deemed unfit to make that decision for themselves, and we need the likes of a warmonger with a vagina to step in and make those decisions for us, which is bullshit. The Fifth Circuit handed down the opinion on Friday, effectively holding that the state of Texas may seize control of content moderation at major social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. This is a big deal. The original law that Texas passed imposes strong restrictions on social media companies' power to moderate content and ban users deemed to be offensive. Trade organizations representing the social media companies sued to block the law from taking effect, and a federal trial court agreed with them. In May, the Fifth Circuit handed down a brief, unexplained order 
in NetChoice versus Paxton, which reinstated the Texas law. Until the Supreme Court blocked that decision a few weeks later, effectively suspending the law again. Now, the Fifth Circuit is attempting to permanently reinstate this law. This ruling, however, holds that the government may force private companies, or at least large private social media companies, to publish content that the companies do not wish to host. The problem with the writer of this article on this subject is that platforms are not publishers, and they continue to treat them as if they are. They're platforms. The publisher is the person who is writing the content and pushing it out. That is the publisher, the the yous and me's of the world who are tweeting. The author goes on to say the Texas law is potentially an existential threat to the social media industry. The anti-censorship provisions are so strict that it would likely prevent the platforms from removing content touting Nazism or white supremacy, or even from blocking social media users who engage in campaigns of harassment against other users. This cracks me up. I'm sorry. How in one breath can you say that this bill violates the First Amendment rights of the platforms, and then in the next breath say, but other people who might say things that I don't agree with might be able to say those things, and consider that to be a a good argument. Additionally, the law imposes disclosure and procedural requirements on the major platforms that may be impossible to comply with. Technically, the law's restrictions only apply to Texas residents. Excuse me. Businesses that operate in Texas or to a social media user who shares or receives content on a social media platform in that state. As a practical matter, however, platforms are likely to struggle with identifying which users viewing the platforms within Texas, so the platforms could be forced to apply Texas's rule to every user in order to avoid being sued for unwittingly targeting someone who the Texas law applies to. The author of this article uses two examples to showcase how this law works. This is funny. Um, The first is scorn lover scenario. If someone's angry that a woman he met online refused his advances, decides to bombard that woman with harassment, much of it calling her ugly, if Twitter bans this user for calling her ugly, Texas's law would also require Twitter to ban anyone who calls the woman beautiful because the law prohibits discrimination on the basis of viewpoint. Additionally, If someone launches a Nazi YouTube account that posts videos calling for the systematic extermination of all Jews, Texas's law would prevent YouTube from banning this user or removing the Nazi videos unless it also took the same action against users who expressed the opposite viewpoint, that is, the view that Jewish people should not be exterminated. Or, novel concept here, Just leave people alone to say whatever they want to say. I know that's insane. That's just, that's crazy that we would do something like that and allow everyone else in the world to decide which content is worthy of consuming. Shout out real fast to Jake from State Farm for putting this nugget in my inbox. 
Aiden Johnson put a piece out for Guns of America exposing gun control that is hidden inside the latest funding bill. The House of Representatives is about to vote on a continuing resolution bill to fund the government, which will likely expire in December. At that point, Congress will be in a lame duck session and will try to pass a funding bill for 2023 fiscal year. Hidden inside that funding bill are 10, 10, in case you did not hear that number, gun control provisions, including budget hikes for the ATF. The 10 provisions include, number one, massive ATF budget increase to facilitate Biden's pistol ban. Number two, gun registration funding. Three, gun confiscation law funding. Four, financial benefits for families of deceased ATF agents killed or injured on the job while enforcing gun control. I'm serious. You might think I'm joking, but I'm not. Fuck you, your kids, and your dog. But but agents who signed up for this job. Anyway, number five, ammunition background check study. They can't take away your guns, but they can determine whether you're fit to load them. Number six, gun control research. Unbound by the Dickey Amendment, which is the more than 20-year-old provision that prohibits the use of federal funds to advocate or promote gun control, shocker, they're making it possible for them to... Number seven, anti-gun community violence interventions. Number eight, domestic violence firearms lethality reduction initiative. I'm going to say that one more time. Firearms lethality reduction. What are they going to do with this? Figure out how to shoot out flowers instead of bullets? Like seriously, how does that initiative even work? Violent anti-government. Oh, this number nine. I'm sorry. Violent anti-government ideology research. Being anti-government is violent. Can't you hear the murderous rage in my voice as I tell you that the elites don't care about you or me? So violent, the words of dissent. We must allocate taxpayer dollars to research where that ideology comes from. And number 10, gun control earmarks. Please, allow them to take your money to use against you to disarm you so they can point their weapons at you and demand compliance. And they wonder who's radicalizing everyone in this country. Someone hand these tyrants a mirror. Per the new pistol pistol rule, owners will now have to complete a form that takes four hours to register their pistol brace firearm. You will be forced to give the ATF your name, social security number, address, phone number, email, payment information, fingerprints, as well as the make, model, and serial number of your firearm and provide photographic evidence of your compliance. Failure to comply would result in jail time and a $250,000 fine. The ATF would spend 78 years to process all of the registration forms. So they're requesting for a budgetary increase to crack down on your rights as soon as possible. Speaking of the ATF, this bill also provides $14 million to modernize the National Tracing Center, which is the branch that maintains accesses, and searches the ATF's digital searchable gun registries. To ensure that you don't get away with failure to comply, this bill proposes 40 
million for gun confiscation orders. Speaking of gun laws, a federal law prohibiting people under felony indictment from buying firearms is unconstitutional, according to a federal judge in Texas, citing the recent Supreme Court ruling stating that the right to keep and bear arms under the Constitution protects a person's right to carry a handgun in public for self-defense. He said, The Second Amendment is not a second-class right. No longer can courts balance away a constitutional right. Uh, U.S. Attorney Ashley Hoff has filed an appeal. The case is based off the case of Jose Gomez Quiroz, Quiroz, not sure how to say his last name, who had been indicted in Texas in a state court for burglary and later for bail jumping when he attempted in late 2021 to buy a 22 caliber semi-automatic handgun, leading to his federal indictment. A federal jury found him guilty of one count of illegal receipt of a firearm by a person under indictment and one count of making a false statement during the purchase of the firearm. The same day the U.S. Supreme Court handed down the New York v. Bruin decision, Quiroz moved to have the case dismissed and the court's granted the request. It's almost as if inherent rights are a thing for some people, but not for others. This last topic is kind of near and dear to my heart, as it's one of the foundational reasons that I started my podcast. A federal judge threw out three of four convictions against a Kansas researcher accused of illegally concealing work he was doing at a Chinese university while working at the University of Kansas, leaving only a conviction for making a false statement on a form. In April, a jury convicted researcher Feng Franklin Tao on three counts of wire fraud and one count of false statements. He was accused of not disclosing that he was working for Fujiao University in China while employed at the Kansas University. However, U.S. District Judge Julie Robinson ruled that the federal prosecutors did not provide sufficient evidence to support the wire fraud convictions. She upheld the making a false statement conviction and denied Tao's request for a new trial on that count. Tao's attorney gave a hell of a statement that they were gratified that Robinson had found that he did not intend to defraud Kansas or the federal government and that he was an outstanding researcher and award-winning professor at Kansas, and that this will hopefully drive a stake through the heart of these Chinese initiative cases where the government has claimed that the failure to disclose a relationship to China constitutes federal grant fraud, even when the researcher has completed all the work on the grant to the government's complete satisfaction. I take massive issue with this position. It doesn't matter if the researcher has completed the work on the grant to the satisfaction of the government if they're just handing that same information over to our adversarial opponent. It matters if the researcher is working on a project that's funded by American taxpayers and they are also collecting a paycheck from the CCP to receive access to the same research. Accept your China money, work in your Chinese institution. Do your research over there. It's the double dip that really pisses me off. Why would anyone encourage enriching the CCP at the expense of the American taxpayer? 
I shouldn't be surprised, though. We funded a research facility in China that unleashed a virus that the government used to destroy the world economy. We shut down the Justice Department's China initiative in February because of public criticism and failed prosecutions, but China certainly hasn't stopped their Thousand Talents program. I don't normally use my morning show to plug my podcast, but episode one of my podcast goes into all of this in explicit detail, and I encourage you to listen if you are interested in those specifics. That is your Wednesday morning edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am so glad that you guys joined me today, and I look forward to seeing you in the coming days. Okay, we got 20 minutes today. I promise it'll be shorter moving forward. Okay, I love you guys. Have a great day. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.